Dr. Houston was born of missionary parents in Spain in 1922, November 21st. So uh, in a couple of weeks, he will be 95 years old. And uh, as a young, young boy in Spain, he had uh, some very serious illnesses. And at the age of eight, um, his family moved to Scotland so that uh, there could be better medical attention. Um, and so eventually, um, coming through that period of uh, uh, rather difficult uh, growing up and being different from the other kids and being behind in school, he eventually graduated from Oxford University with a, a DPhil degree in 1949 uh, in the area of geography. And especially the history of ideas became uh, something that he um, has been pursuing ever since. He's trained in that area. And so every time he speaks about whatever it is, it's always an historical view somehow to give us an orientation. He uh, was a lecturer and fellow at Oxford from 1947 to 1971. And uh, the tutorial system in at Oxford meant that the students there, the um, lectures were optional. You didn't have to go to the lectures, but you had to attend a one-on-one -on -one with the, the don or the lecturer in, um, uh, per week, present, read a paper, and talk. And so uh, Dr. Houston spent 15 to 20 hours a week uh, in tutorials, and uh, if a student uh, wanted to talk about personal issues, he would just take the hour and talk about that uh, with them, but at the same time then schedule an extra tutorial to deal with the actual course or subject they were studying. And so he would spend uh, quite a few hours a week one-on-one -on -one with students, a practice that he kept up after coming to Canada as a principal and then um, professor at Regent College in Vancouver, always taking time, even at the expense of the running of the college, uh, he would spend time with a needy student uh, when something else should have been done, but uh, it survived. The college did quite well and um, started out uh, in 1970, was their first full-time program. Their summer school started in 1969 and has continued to this day to be a real draw um, for students all over the world, bringing uh, speakers from all over the world in their areas of expertise. Still, it's on the UBC campus and the, the charter they were granted was unique uh, in the world of a, a faith institution uh, being affiliated with a, with a universe, secular university, UBC. Um, which gives it uh, a very un a unique place. Um, he started with six faculty and four students, so a very good faculty to student ratio. <laughs> and uh, it's grown since then. During his time, uh, though, before he came to Regent, um, he, he, he was uh, part of a group uh, of uh, scholars that met, uh, I still don't remember, was it monthly or weekly? <laughs> they met with C.S. Lewis and the other scholars. Yeah, 
It was monthly in his rooms uh, where he was sharing a room with Nicholas Zernoff, an Orthodox leader. Uh, Houston was not married at the time, and so um, they met together for six years uh, before Lewis uh, uh, was uh, accepted a post at Cambridge as professor of uh, medieval and Renaissance literature. But they got to, Lewis became uh, very much a model for Dr. Houston of uh, personal care for, for students and also letter writing and these, these sorts of things which have been a trademark of, of Jim's life ever since, uh, the ministry of letter writing as a form of um, caring and friendship and also spiritual direction. Um, his letters of faith and devotion of two volumes, which he um, edited a few years ago, is uh, a gem. The letters of Christian writers and leaders through the centuries. He edited them and brought them together, one for each day of the year, depending on the liturgical church year. Um, and so also learning from C.S. Lewis this... Uh, valuing the life of the mind as well as the life of the heart. And uh, so in um, 1976, uh, Dr. Houston, uh, along with uh, a friend, Jim Hinson, started the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, to uh, educate professionals, politicians, anybody uh, uh, who, uh, yes, people who were pursuing uh, their careers to give them theological training. And so if you go to cslewisinstitute.org, you can access um, all the different resources there and speakers. And there are about 60 or so lectures dating back to 1979 or so uh, that Dr. Houston has given. They're all there for free download, um, each one of them uh, up to an hour long. And uh, they're just gems because as Dr. Houston has said, every year he burns all his lecture notes, and uh, never—I've uh, never heard him give the, give the same lecture twice uh, on any subject. Um, and so it's always fresh. He says, uh, "If I did that, I, I wouldn't survive here. I, <laughs> I need to have something to hold on to, uh, uh, a little more uh, memorable for me." So. Um, Anyway, um, I could go on and talk about more of his writings through the years and his time at Regent, um, but I want to welcome him here. It's an honor to have you here, uh, Dr. Houston. Well, I'm uh, delighted. I'm delighted to be with you and to see we have such a mixed audience of all ages, because uh, this, uh, this theme for this evening is relevant uh, for old and young. And in fact, uh, one of the, uh, the crises that we're facing in the life of the church is how can we keep together the youth in our churches with the seniors? There's a great crisis that's developing because of the tech revolution is creating a kind of canyon that is unbridgeable between those who were born in the tech age and knew nothing else but the iPhone and the iPad, and those of us as seniors who are still stumbling to know how in the world do we, we, we communicate with uh, 
with the uh, new technology. Um, and so that's one issue that uh, we shall be facing tonight. How do we bridge that gulf between them? And of course, another thing that we're finding with seniority is that um, uh, the, uh, the different mindsets that we have uh, is not easy to bridge. And so I was asked by a psychiatrist some years ago if I would write a book with him on the challenge of the aging church. Uh, it was very amusing how it came about for him because he was a colonel in the, in the medical corps in Iraq and they, they were being evacuated at the end of the war. And so the, the chief medical general said, uh, well, those of you who have that status of, of uh, uh, colonels and upwards, uh, you can get a, a postdoctoral fellowship to go to Michigan State University to retool for Civvy Street. Well, he told his colleagues that um, as they're all, of course, working with the soldiers, they were all youth psychiatrists. And he said, I just have an urge to become uh, a, um, a geriatric psychiatrist for the old. And his colleague said, oh, the general will just blast you out of his room if uh, you tell them you're going to change your whole medical career from youth to old age. Well, he felt the Lord had told him to do this, and uh, they didn't understand, of course, as uh, non-believers. So in fear and trembling, he went to the door of the general to make his application. Well... He didn't know that half an hour beforehand, uh, the pastor for his aged mother in North Carolina phoned up Baghdad and said to the general, your mother is in her dementia keeping the, the hot plate burning and she'll burn the house down one of these days. What do we do? Well, of course, being a military man, he said, what the hell do you think I could do in Baghdad about my mother? You, you're the guy that's on the spot that should be looking after her. And uh, so he really got flustered and thought, this, this guy was just an idiot. Well, that's not a very good expletive for a pastor, uh, at least uh, to give to a pastor, but that's what he did. And so half an hour later, trembling, Mike knocks at the door. He said, you know, General, uh, with the aging population that we're facing, don't you think that some of us should go into geriatrics? My dear chap, there's no finer calling in this life. <laughs> and so that's how we, we got together to write this book on aging. Well, now, what it's illustrating is that we're living in a fluid culture. And fluidity is everywhere. And so I want to share with you in uh, all sorts of ways, how this fluidity is affecting us as Christians. And where do we stand in the midst of this fluidity? Uh, now, of course, you're not in a fluid culture here in, uh, in Three Hills. 
in, in the rural area, you live by the seasons. And so your steady pace of seasonality is, uh, is really uh, much more natural. Mm -hmm. It's like the poet who said uh, that God made the country, but man made the city. And that's what it is. But I look out of my window and I see the two bridges of uh, connecting uh, the inner city with the outer suburbs. And especially at night, I see the neon lights of all the traffic flowing all over the bridge. So we have urban mobility. And the impact of the motor car has done that for us. And so I live in a, in a world that's constantly in flux uh, in terms of urban living compared with where you are here. But it doesn't matter where you live. We're all being affected by this new psyche of mobility. Now, there's some very tragic ways in which this is happening. Because as evangelicals, there are people who've been some of our leaders, and such is the mobility of their attitudes to faith, that they become apostate. I think of David Benner, who is a friend of my son, and uh, he's a very lovable guy, but he was a psychiatrist, uh, he was a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and what he did was to say, Psychology is my God, not God. And uh, one of his uh, close friends was Larry Crabb. And Larry and I were close friends. And about seven years ago, Larry said, you know, I've been warning David Benner, but he's on the wrong track. And... Uh, some, like seven years ago, he declared publicly that he no longer believed in the uniqueness of Christianity. He no longer believed in the divinity of Christ. And he still advertised by Intervasti as one of the best writers on sp Christian formation, on spirituality. That's the fluidity of what's happening, even to our teachers, respected evangelical leaders. And then, of course, I'm not going to touch on the subject tonight because you've got this distinguished guest coming tomorrow for the rest of the week who will be speaking about the fluidity of gender. And, uh, and of course, we never dreamed that there was such a thing as this fluidity that uh, we're now facing over uh, transgender issues. Even small children are being educated to believe they have a different sex. It's crazy. Absolutely mad. So you can see that it occurs at many different levels. Now, of course, the one problem when you begin to see everything fluid is that we have a phenomenon that I studied many years ago called um, uh, environmental perception. Um, in other words, we don't see uh, with the naked eye. There is a transition that takes place in, 
in our optical world between perception and conception. And so um, I had the privilege when I was quite young to be on an international commission um, for environmental perception. And we had a, a first big international rally in Brazil in 1959. And it was the perception that we were in danger from nature. So how do you perceive hazards? In other words, when do you build on a floodplain? And when don't you? Or as we were taken on a commission by the chief geologist and seismologist of uh, California along the San Andres Fault, when do you perceive that the San Andres Fault is dangerous to build on? And so we were shown five hospitals all on the San Andres Fault. Even the, head, the, head, the headquarters of the Red Cross was on the San Andres Fault. And we thought, how stupid, how stupid that people don't perceive danger. Well, over dinner that night, the colleague of this uh, uh, chairman whispered to me, but, you know, he hasn't told you that his house is on the San Andres Fault. <laughs> Well, it was the perception that, uh, that it's okay that meant that they didn't perceive it as a hazard. Or it's, of course, greed that uh, a developer will grab up cheap land after a flood and then knowing there's a 20-year cycle will then say, okay, this is okay, you know, you're safe now, it's, the flood's over. It, of course, it isn't over. It took another 20 years and it'll be there again. So you just need to do the hydrology to understand uh, this danger. Well, that has all been reversed. It's not that we're afraid of nature. It's nature that's now afraid of us. And so that's why we now have the, the Greenpeace movement and, and the Green movement and uh, Save the Amazon movement, all these things we're now seeing things in total reverse. So the one movement has actually led into the other. And I had the privilege when I first started teaching at Regent to uh, actually uh, give the ammunition to the founders of the Greenpeace movement, who were mostly young lawyers and political scientists, uh, to give them the ammunition for the environmental movement. So help me God, because... <laughs> They, they, they themselves got so highly politicalized that uh, they've, exp they've imploded. The movements disappeared. Why? Because it was so highly politicalized and they were all fighting for the positions. And so the result is that others have taken the torch now of uh, the green movement in other parts of the world. Well, what all of this means is that we can uh, exaggerate too much on even the fluidity of our culture. We get in our mindset, everything's fluid, and then, of course, we see fluidity everywhere, you see. So I want to caution you that we have to be uh, critical as to how far we're talking about fluidity tonight. And that's why I would critique a, a very uh, a founding sociologist uh, in Britain called, uh, he was a Polish refugee, actually, uh, called Siegmund Bauman. Uh, and if you look up Amazon.com, there are scores of books 
of Siegmund um, Baumann on fluidity. One of his best known is called Liquid Modernity. And uh, his reminiscences are also a very important document to read. But the, you just wonder, how many more books can I read of, of Bauman about liquid uh, modernity? Because it's, it's everywhere. Well, as I say, we can exaggerate too much. But in moderation, what do we mean by a liquid culture that we're in? Well, the analogy uh, that he took was from elementary physics. And in physics, you have two ways of the way that molecules behave. You can learn far more about this from Richard than from me, because he started as a physicist. But uh, uh, there are molecules that interlock. Inter and they give solidity, they give a rock see, to stand on. That's, uh, that's one form of molecule structure. The other is loose molecules that flow. And they're the ones that create us with our floodplains, with our tsunamis, and uh, with just floods. And so that analogy uh, of what coheres and what is loose is what is uh, now being used analogically uh, to culture that we're living with today. And so uh, what the argument of people like Bauman is, is that we are so caught up in this mindset of fluidity that uh, it's in every dimension of our life. Let me ex explain some of the dimensions. First of all, there's a fluidity of identity. Who am I? And uh, some of you may have uh, been living in the time when Les Miserables was on Broadway, and uh, you heard the echo of Valjean, uh, Jean Valjean, who am I, you see? Uh, he's being pursued by the police for stealing bread to give to the poor. Is he a thief or is he a benefactor? Well, he thought he was a benefactor and the police bureaucracy thought he was a thief. And so you get that great cry, who am I? And many in our culture today, many of you perhaps are still asking, who am I? Or you get the poignant uh, prayer of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he's in prison. And uh, he has different persona. He's a pastor. He acts as a prison chaplain because now he's in prison. But he's the brother-in-law of one of the chief uh, co-conspirators to assassinate Hitler. So he's involved in two assassination attempts to kill Hitler, but he's a theologian at the same time. So what about the command, thou shalt not kill? How does he square all those things? And now he's in prison facing his death. 
and all he can say at the end of that poignant prayer is, I don't know who I am. Am I a lover? But I've lost my beloved. Am I a son? But I'm no longer with my parents. Am I a chaplain? Am I a theologian? And we all wear these different hats, which means that we have fluidity uh, in our daily work. You know, I, I'm a professor so-and-so, I'm a doctor so-and-so. Yes, well, that's your persona socially, but who are you as a family man is another thing again, you see. And so all that he can do is to say, I don't know, but Lord, you know who I am. That's all that counts. There's a resting place in his knowledge of me. Well, um, I could speak then about the history of the fluidity of identity tonight. And I'll just touch on that. We're asking, as other generations have asked, who is the modern self? How did the modern self come into being? And so in the humanities today, there's a whole industry on identity. And, uh, well, identity is a result of self-consciousness. But we have a self-consciousness that our predecessors didn't have. And then we objectify it as something given, and we pay more self-attention to that. But that still doesn't answer the poignant, who am I? Or we become much more self-concerned, with much more self-scrutiny. We need much more self-control. It's like the owner, it's like a peasant that's now become the owner of a big estate. And me, who am I, has become a big territory. So all of us are asking those questions today. And then, of course, we know that historically, uh, self-consciousness and self-identity has changed. Let me give you a brief synopsis of what's happened in America. In the Civil War in England, um, it was the king who had self-identity. He was the monarch. And he had the divine right of, of kingship to rule. So his identity was God-given. He was a king. And then in the Civil War, the levelers said, but we're all monarchical selves. And they, called, they were called the levelers because they were leveling everybody. Now in a democracy, or the beginning of a democracy, to say that we're all kings. And so Thomas Hobbes, as the philosopher of that period, uh, really is writing about the depiction of the monarchical self. And then there followed John Locke, who said, but everyone who, as a colonist, clears the swamps and cuts down the forests, then I'm a proprietorial self. I, and here you have it, of course, in Saskatchewan and uh, in, Al in Alberta, 
that on the pioneer fringe, you became a settler and you had the right to clear the land and call it your own. So you have the proprietorial self, the Lockean self. And then the next century, in the middle of the uh, 18th century, uh, heightened self-consciousness uh, that we get in the, the novel about the childhood veiled autobiography of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau is saying that uh, we are the romantic self. That's to say, I'm the owner of my own self-consciousness. And that was explosive. That created the Civil War uh, in uh, the colonies and, of course, most explosive, the French Revolution in France. Because now one is the romantic self. So where are we today in North America? Well, by the middle of the 19th century, in the 1830s, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a political observer, came over to America and he said, uh, there's a new experiment that's taking place in the laboratory of North America and it's called the rise of the individual and the individual self. Now, the individual self that was developed uh, has, of course, gone to the extremity of becoming the narcissistic self that could destroy and disintegrate uh, our Western way of life. And, uh, and so we find that um, um, the result of that uh, um, was intensified when the Industrial Revolution of America was harnessed to the Second World War to produce all those guns and tanks and aircraft. And how do you turn uh, uh, plow, uh, swords into plowshares? You can't do it with the same uh, volume. It's impossible. So what was invented uh, after the war was the advertised self. And the advertised self, with the rise of advertising, uh, was the empty self. And the empty self needs self-fulfillment. And so we get the cult of self-fulfillment. And the cult of self-fulfillment is the reason why we have all these shopping malls, why we have these credit cards, because I owe it to myself not to want, but I've created my own wants. And so, of course, one of the sad things that often destroy a family is when one of the members of the family becomes a shopping addict, addicted to buying I don't need this, but I just have to buy it. It's new. <laughs> and so you can see uh, what this kind of fluidity has been. Now, how then do we as Christians respond to all this? How do we stabilize or are given by God the ability to stabilize our identity? or to be able to stabilize our wants, 
or to be able to stabilize the convictions of our faith or to stabilize our relationships with others. How can we do this? You see, it, la it lacks boundaries. And so the very nature of creation is that creation is God bounding chaos. That he, uh, he set bounds to the darkness by creating light. He created bounds to the sea to create land. He, of course, also bounded the heavens so that you get the stars now moving in their planetary courses. So being bounded is God's act of creation. And God's act of new creation in our lives is setting bounds to our desires, which are infinite. And so we have to be aware of all of this uh, for our own lives. Two disciples, knowing the calmness of our Lord, the peace that radiated from him, the truth that so anchored his whole being as the Son of God, they said, Master, where do you dwell? And our Lord says, come and see. And so what uh, our Lord does for us is that we want to dwell with him. And we dwell with him in communion with him, in prayer with him, and worship with him. And we have, therefore, to realize that uh, like uh, the disciples, they discovered that his dwelling place was the bosom of the Father. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he dwells on the two breasts of Jesus because there is his dwelling place, the love of Christ. Bernard of Clairvaux speaks about those two breasts. He says, the one breast is his grace, that he embraces us like the father embracing the prodigal son. And the other breast is that every day we make a mess of things. There's new mercy for the new day. So that's our dwelling place on the breasts of Jesus. One of the things that I'll be touching on tomorrow in terms of uh, a new approach to theology that I'm calling child theology is that... Uh, Every child uh, begins at the uh, early age of the beginning of memory, which is three and a half to four years old, to begin to, to remember the wounds of a child. And uh, all of us instinctively act as our own redeemer when we seek to have compensation for that childhood wound. And uh, many of us have made a great success of life because that's what compensates your behavior. 
It enables us by being our own redeemer to be very successful in our careers. But the result is that then our redemptive activity is competing with our redeemer. And whenever you have strong compensatory behavior and personality, I can bet you one thing, you'll not know the presence of the Lord in your life. But you will find the presence of the Lord in your life when you're bankrupt. When you say, Lord, save me. When you're able to say, you know, there are not two redeemers in my life, there's only one. I can, I simply botch things up. And so then we realize that uh, we, uh, we can do this uh, in so many different ways. So the knowledge of ourselves in the light of the knowledge of God only grows when we realize that uh, I'm always acting in compensatory ways. My ministry as a Christian, it can be very compensatory. Um, sometimes you can have good compensations that benefit others. And so I'll share one of my compensations. When I was um, 19, my, I have two sisters then. One's died, but the other's now near her death. But my sister Ethel, who was next to me, uh, she at 17 was recruited to the Bletchley program, the Enigma program. And uh, there she had to totally keep secret everything that happened in Heart 16. For that reason, she couldn't marry. She couldn't share with her husband. They weren't allowed to for 35 years. And uh, so she never married. And I lost my sister because she really couldn't share anything with me. And uh, I've mourned the fact that I've lost her. So how did I react to her? Well, I just wanted to pursue transparency, transparency, transparency for the rest of my life. So that's a good thing. Uh, and sometimes people think I'm too transparent because <laughs> I'm too threatening when you're transparent. And you know how much transparency there is in church politics? No. <laughs> so one of the greatest problems of our aging churches is their bureaucratic intransparency. And no wonder our young people who are wanting to be real, they want to, they want to know the truth. Uh, they pursue reality. No wonder we're losing them in the church because of that. Um, so we have to reserve the landmarks of what is happening in our culture today. Now, let me give you an illustration from the life of the Apostle Peter, how he had so many multiple identities that he was very unstable. 
Because if you have multiple identities, which role should I play for which act, you see? So you think of his three names. He was Simon, Peter, that became Cephas. Three names, three identities. What does the word Peter mean? Well, well, first of all, that's what the word Simon means. He came from the tribe of Simon. And the Simeonites were the zealots in the wars of the Second Maccabees. And so, as coming from the zealots, then, of course, Simon is the one who, when Jesus is being arrested, takes out his sword, as a zealot would do, and he's in for a big fight. And he cuts off the high priest's ear. That's acting as a zealot. But he didn't have any idea of the identity of his master, Jesus Christ. He had forgotten all about the one who's meek and lowly of heart. He wants a fight. But then he's also Peter. And um, in uh, the Mediterranean world, in classical times, and you still get it in languages like Spanish and Italian, uh, you have the diminutive form. So um, in Spanish, uh, Peter's name is Piedracito. He's a pebble, <laughs> little pebble. <laughs> so he, he grows up. And of course, he's teased, no doubt, by his school friends as being a pebble and, uh, and mocked for being a pebble. And I'm sure that was part of all the bluster and bravado that later he wanted to compensate. You have to take me seriously. I'm not a pebble on the beach. But he's a pebble. And yet, here is the pebble that Jesus says is going to be a rock. Well, he's not going to be a rock, but he's going to stand on a rock. And so when pebbles stand on a rock, <laughs> they're more secure than they are on the beach with the tide. And so now Peter's on a rock that is not him, but Christ. And so we sing on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is shifting sand. Or oh, we think of the parable that Jesus himself taught of uh, building your house on the rock and not upon the sand. And so now Peter has given a new identity. And of course, Cephas is that third identity, that he's the one who is a rock. Because the word Cephas is rock, no longer a pebble. And we are only rock-like not because we have an intrinsic rock-like character, but because we stand upon the everlasting rock that shelters us. Now, Peter, as our exemplar of being pebbles for Christ, <laughs> is so human. And... Uh, one thing about critical scholarship is it, it gets rid of mythology. And it's just mythology that Peter ever was martyred in Rome. There's no evidence in all the excavation 
uh, under the high altar in the Vatican to find the bones of Peter. They ain't there. And there's no evidence of any uh, 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 tomb in the, in the catechins that convey the bones of Peter. So where is Peter? I think Peter ended his life totally transformed. And so for somebody who's an extrovert, somebody who's always dashing out there and doing what he thinks are heroic things only to crash because he's ridiculed by a servant and that's enough for him to just collapse. He probably hides in the remote, ruined uh, village or hamlet, just a small hamlet, of Bethesda. And he was told to become a fisher of men and he just spent the rest of his life fishing. And as a fisherman, he was a very humble fisherman because he didn't have a boat like the entrepreneurs, uh, uh, the Sons of Thunder, uh, who did have a boat that they used for entrepreneurial fishing for the, uh, the Roman fish industry to supply the Roman troops with fish, canned fish. Um, that's what uh, they did in Capernaum. But in this remote hamlet, nothing is more remarkable than the end stage of stability that is now given to Peter. Now, am I making that up? No. You'll find that one of our own distinguished alumni, Marcus Bockmuel, has written three books on Peter, and he's researched this inside out. So you can read Marcus Bockmuel on Peter to discover all of this. Now, it means that God gives us a stability. We may not like it. We don't like to live an obscure life. We don't like to live a hidden life. But what is essential for us all to have stability in our lives and in our ministry is to live a hidden life. It was about 10 years ago, was the last time I was privileged to preach in my own church. I've never been asked since. <laughs> and what was the sermon? That my life is hid with Christ and God. Nobody likes to hear that. But that's where you're safe from fluidity and instability when your life is hid with Christ and God. And so, as um, we reflect on all this this evening, what I suggest we do live with are examples. So this is a new example, the hidden Peter. Can you live like Peter? Because you know him so well. He's you. And then you discover, yes, we live with examples. And so I think of a period of the church that was like our own period. 
and it was the period at the fall of the Roman Empire. It was a period when all was in flux. The Visigoths had invaded Italy and they'd taken over uh, the uh, Pax Romana and the stability of the empire. It had collapsed. And now these uh, heathen tribes have raided it and destroyed and one of the proud aristocrats of that period had a metanoia when he left his rank as, a, as an aristocrat patrician, gave away all his wealth and became a humble monk. I don't know whether you know what is the clothing of a monk that has no sleeves. The garment of a monk is a child's garment. The cowl is, in classical times, a child's uh, just simple cloak. It just droops over you and uh, it has no sleeves and it just covers you. And so uh, a monk is taking the place of a little child in the kingdom of heaven. We'll say more about that tomorrow. Well, Benedict of Nursia, at the end of the 6th century, beginning of the 7th century, radically changed his life to become a humble monk. He created the rule of Benedict, which is nothing more than a set of principles to help you and I to be stabilized in our life. And the rhythm of that culture is uh, not the rhythm of seasonality even, it's the rhythm of work and prayer. We work and we pray. And Every few minutes when we get exhausted with hard manual labor, we just pray, Lord, help me. I need strength. It's like breathing in and breathing out of air that gives us life. And so it's a rhythm of work and pray. And um, it's, of course, a vow of obedience. And the vow of obedience is not just being obedient. Obadiri in Latin means to listen. So obedience is not so much being obedient, but you're listening. You're listening to God. And uh, my dear friend Klaus Bockmuehl wrote a wonderful little classic called Listening to the God Who Speaks. Are we spending every day listening to him? And you see, when you listen, you're exercising hospitality because you're giving space for God in your life. And when you give space in God in your life, then you can be hospitable with others, the stranger, to give them food and shelter as well. So it's a continuum between obedience and hospitality. What does this do for you? 
Well, a monk is always the same. <laughs> you can visit him from year to year. His head is getting gray and white. But that stability of character is there. And of course, there's the exercise of chastity so that uh, he's not swept away in a tsunami of sexual uh, life. And you exercise humility as you serve others because you're more conscious of them, because you're more conscious of God than you're conscious of yourself. That's what humility is. And of course, you learn to reverence. Reverence other people. <laughs> Because above all, you reverence God and the beauty of holiness. And then you seek to live continually in the presence of the Lord. Even our ministries, our church ministries, our college ministries can be idolatrous. It's my ministry. It's not. We're there to serve others because we serve God. And so, I often used to be very disquieted when some of our young students would say across the atrium of our college, I've come here to be equipped for my ministry. Well, what's that? It's narcissism. So, that's the challenge that we give each other as I give it to myself tonight. Thank you very much. So we have uh, some time for question and answer, but just a point to, to mention, um, tomorrow morning at 8.30 will be a talk given by Dr. Houston uh, in the uh, Founders Hall building on the third floor and uh, FH 302 up to the third floor and turn right. The Christian Formation class usually meets on Wednesday mornings so uh, but you're all they want to invite all of you that can come to take in the lecture on child theology yes. spirituality and childhood very important so uh, that's tomorrow morning at 830 goes till 945 you're free to come and, and join that if you if you can. Um, so questions, I'll get the microphone to you so he can hear your question. I wonder if you could respond to something I heard years ago in class. Uh, it was a counseling class with Dr. Pamela Reeve who you might have heard of before, taught at Multnomah no. University. She was talking about the concept of low self-esteem and said, actually, low self-esteem is self-preoccupation, and so it's actually the opposite of humility. Yes. It's a form of pride. Yes. I haven't found anyone else who's said that, but some of what you've said tonight seems similar. Could you respond? Oh, yes, there was a period. Uh, how long ago are you talking about? 20 years. That's right. 20, 30 years ago, it was the buzzword in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, psychotherapy has its fashions. Mm -hmm. And so I think the reason for that period 
of uh, focusing on self-esteem was beginning because our identity is beginning to shake up. Mm. And so our identity has become an industry since then. Mm -hmm. So the two things are related. Mm -hmm. That's how they've come together. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, I, I, there's a very distinguished, uh, I didn't mention his name, but um, he, his wife was, uh, was a psychotherapist, and so they wrote together a book on, uh, on the establishment of self-esteem. Well, I'm afraid he's been on the trajectory of self-esteem ever since. <laughs> he's not been freed from it. So, yeah, yeah, they say you have to love yourself first if you're going to love others, right? Love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I've heard this taught many times. Well, if I don't love myself, then I'm not able to love others. So that becomes the sort of basis for love. Well, of that's right. And I was speaking actually at lunchtime to the students about uh, the five levels of love that Bernard of Clairvaux mm -hmm. has given to us. And so I don't know whether I can repeat it, but for... Uh, you might be interested. Bernard says there are five levels of love. And the first level of love is loving ourselves for our own sake, with our own love. Well, that's narcissism. That's what makes us incurably sinners. The second level is we see God's difference. So we want to love God for his own sake, but with our own love. That's Romans 7. Thirdly, we want uh, to love others for their own sake with our own love. That's still Romans 7. Fourthly, we realize that we can only love God for his own sake with his own love. That's Romans 8. And then we also realize, finally, that to love our neighbor as ourselves is really a cryptic way of saying that we love ourselves as God loves us for his own sake with his own love. That cuts all the crap about self-esteem. <laughs> it does. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Zach? So you're maybe the third or fourth person I've heard. Um, you're maybe the third or fourth person uh, who I've heard talk about uh, a return to kind of monasticism to look at Benedict yeah. uh, as an example for how we, as Christians, we're living our lives. Yes. Um, but as somebody who, you know, the monastery is out of the question for me, um, how, do I, how does one do that at home with children, with the family? To, you know, <laughs> I've, I've sat down and I've read through Benedict's rule and, and, and maybe over-romanticized it in my brain. Uh, but how do we do that in a... Well, when you have children, you have to become more of a saint. <laughs> no, life gets more complicated the more relationships we have. 
and especially with our own children, yes. But I think what children do is that they, our reactions are sometimes more childish than they are. <laughs> so we learn in the mirror of their childhood that we're very childish too, as parents. We've got to grow up, you see. So we have to learn the admonition of 1 Corinthians 13, that we put away childish things, you see. And of course, it's the same thing, the same principle I've just been saying, that we have to love our children, not with our own love, but with Christ's love. Anything that's natural is of the flesh. Even what we think is parental love. It's hard to say that. You agree? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Other questions? We've been, as we've been working with different college students over the last few years, something we kind of feel like we're noticing is obviously the identity question is a big question when you're in your early 20s, but now it seems like there's a really strong tie between a lack of identity and a paralyzing fear of failure in our students, uh, more so than we've ever seen before, to the point where it's hard to sometimes have real conversations about real things, because the risk of failure in the relationship is so great that it seems the students live these lives that are very, very isolated. Yes. And I feel like there's connections between that and what you're talking about tonight, but I feel like I don't fully understand always how to step into what the students are struggling with now because it seems like so many people live in so much isolation in the chaotic fluidity of culture. I'm curious, do you have a sort of a response to this vague thing I'm trying yeah, to talk about? Yes. <laughs> well, I think one thing is that you might say that never was it more significant in self-consciousness to be a functional self. Uh, because we have so much more gadgetry with which to be functional. And so there never was a more intelligent generation in terms of information. And uh, so there are great potentials, and young people know there are great potentials for them in a tech world. And, uh, but at the same time, um, they get more alienated the more functional they become. And so, we, you know, all our questions are often, how do you do this? What's, uh, what's, the, what's the solution to this, you see? Uh, it's how, how to, how to, how to all the time, you see. And so, uh, one of the critiques that Jackie Lule made in, uh, as the great prophet against technology, um, he, taught, he, he speaks of it in the French word techne. He said, the one thing I can prophesy about the future is that because of the extension of technique, giving us powers of extension that we've never had before, 
the result will be that the good will get better and the worse will get worse. So the amplitude between good and evil is intensified. And so our young people are sensitive to the fact that, you know, it's like the faster the car, I mean, uh, you, you heard the other day that there's a new rocket car that's now doing a thousand miles an hour, you see. And they're boosting that next year it'll do two or five thousand miles an hour. Well, what kind of a car is that, you see? But that's the, that's the, the flight and the power that our contemporary world has got, you see. So am I helping you to to reflect about this, you see. So yes, many you. times, you don't give people an answer, you just hug them. <laughs> <laughs> well said, thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, I'm, pre I'm training to be a pastor here at the, in our program here, and a lot of what we're doing is we're studying, studying rhetoric and trying to reach people through attractive preaching. Um, and a lot of it is becoming, it's all about becoming faster and focusing more on singular points rather than going into depth about an idea, just trying to get the simple points across. Um, what would you have to say about just the, the lack of attentiveness that audiences tend to have with speakers? Because I know that I'm going to be standing in front of a bunch of people with cell phones, and I know that I'm not nearly as attractive as a cell phone. So how am I going to be able to reach um, people preaching when it seems like the lack of attention, like our attention spans are just plummeting? Like how am I supposed to reach people? Well, the more unreal you are as a pastor, the less attention you'll get. <laughs> so how do you then become real? Uh, as the velvet, vel velveteen rabbit was for the child, because you could really feel the reality of that fur. This was a rabbit. <laughs> how can we, as pastors, enter into, well, if you're asking the how-to questions, then it's a dead failure you're going to have. Sure. So, no, it's not that. No, I think you become more exposing of yourself. I mean, I, I have decided because I'm now engaged in a program uh, with uh, some of the senior, uh, the major, part, uh, major churches in Tokyo. How do we bridge the gap between the youth and the elders or the seniors in our churches? It's, it's, a, it's a global crisis that we're facing. How do we bridge it? So I started uh, to stop going to my own church and just shop around uh, to the youth churches and, uh, and just listen to what's going on. Well, of course, I sometimes have to put on uh, earplugs, but apart from that, <laughs> but apart from that, I'm listening and I'm learning a lot more wisdom than I had before. And what am I learning about these pastors? Fundamentally, they're exposing their own frailty. They're talking about their own struggles emotionally. They're telling their own story 
And young people love reality. And so even though they're in the tech revolution, they want reality. And so I think the thing that you can say is just be transparent. Thank you. Anyone else? You never know what kind of answer you'll get, you know. Well, one of the things that's interesting is I've not heard from any of the seniors here this evening. There we go. <laughs> so if everything that comes naturally is automatically of the flesh, how do you... like? No, I can't hear you, so... If everything that comes naturally is of the flesh... What's the difference there between giftings or someone walking according to the Spirit, but things do become more easy or more natural? How do you differentiate? It's a very tricky balance. It's a very tricky balance. Because what you may be sure of, that what comes instinctually to you is wrong. Now, we, we say, I have an instinct for this. Well, we can have a right instinct when we are, uh, uh, you know, highly versatile and highly groomed in our profession. And so the instinct of a surgeon will save a, somebody's life. So, yes, that there's, that there's that right kind of instinct. But I'm talking more about our emotional instincts. But the instincts of doing something professionally right that's good, but it's our emotional instincts that always have a much longer narrative than we know about. Does that help? Anyone else? So we're having the silence of seniors tonight. <laughs> okay, we have another one. If no one else is going to ask, I would love to hear a C.S. Lewis story. Like you must have, you know, hanging out with him at your house, he must have said things or done things that the rest of us don't know about. Well, I can tell you a sad story about Lewis. And that is that I was the, um, as the evangelical sort of uh, intervarsity uh, professor, uh, leader in the, in the Oxford life, I was the, uh, the senior uh, uh, representative of the OQ for the, with the university. I was responsible for their behavior. <laughs> and I was also the chairman of the graduates fellowship. Well, the students never had Lewis to preach. He was not a Christian. He was not a sound Christian. He may be a Christian of some kind, but not a sound evangelical. So the students refused to have him. 
And uh, you would think that the graduates were more mature. But they never allowed me to have him to speak to any of their meetings. So you can see what fluidity has done in our time. <laughs> it's totally reversed our appreciation of C.S. Lewis. You know. So that's very sad. Of course, on the inside story about Lewis, um, his own emotional life was a bit chaotic. I mean, who in the world will marry somebody because she's one of his disciples, a convert from New York, and she comes with her two small boys, and uh, she needs a visa to stay in this McCarthy era for a longer period of time, after six months. And he says, well, I will marry you to give you a visa. Well, I don't know of any sensible Christian today that would ever give any member of the congregation <laughs> the opportunity <laughs> to get married, simply to stay in the congregation. Can you imagine? And, um, and then, of course, when she was dying, then he fell in love with her. And then, of course, he asked the Bishop of Oxford to uh, give him a, a second uh, wedding. And the Bishop said, no way. You've had one civil marriage. That's all you can get. And so he had to get one of his uh, students who uh, was a, a pastor in the Diocese of London to marry them. So that's the, the sad side of Lewis, that was his Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel of it was that uh, he was really, from day one, a fatherless child. If you read uh, some of his own memoirs, his mother died when he was eight years old. He loved his mother. His father, was um, a solicitor, frustrated solicitor, who wanted to be a politician. So he never knew his son. And uh, Lewis said, when my mother died, it was as if I was cast adrift on a dark, heaving ocean. There, were no, there was no land in sight. And that was his emotional life, a dark, heaving ocean that he felt as a child. And so a, a kind of tragic comedy of uh, he and his uh, uh, older brother, Bernie, was that they were stealing apples in the orchard and the father uh, brought them on the carpet to give them a scolding. I suppose they were about 12 years old at this time. And... Um, uh, he forgot that he was supposed to be scolding small boys. He thought he was in the House of Commons giving a, a political speech, starting to quote Burke and all the great uh, politicians. And, of course, the small boys thought, well, father's forgotten about us. And, of course, as soon as he started escaping, he roared like a bull to get their attention again. And uh, his only interest was that they should have, because he wanted to elevate his own social status, so instead of having an Irish accent, 
he wanted them to have an English accent, an Oxford accent, as they call it. It's not Oxford at all. The Oxford accent of the locals is very, very rough. But it's the mystique of this Oxford accent. So he looked up the calendar for the cheapest of these private schools that would give him his boy an English accent. And this happened a week after the mother's death. And so a week after his mother died, he was sent a thousand miles away to get an English accent. How surreal. Huh? And so the struggle, as I wrote about in a paper some many years ago, was that uh, his prayer life as a small boy was like his father, giving speeches to God. And of course, these speeches never worked. He, didn't, he really couldn't imagine God listening to him. And so he would go in his frustration and tears to sleep at night. No wonder he left God. And um, when he was wounded after the Battle of Somme, he'd only been there six months, trained as an officer, rushed into the uh, officer training. And of course, the, the one way of escape in those days from death was just to get wounded. And so it's very interesting that all our great writers of that period, Charles uh, Williams, and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they were all wounded in the Battle of the Somme. So it's an interesting thing what would have happened if they hadn't been wounded, you see. And so he's now wounded. And he's lying in a London hospital. And his father's not come near him. He's been there six months. And he writes and says, Father, you know, I think the, the British uh, public school has alienated us because since a small boy, you see, he was away at school. And so he said, but Father, please come to me. His father ignored it. That's the inside story of Lewis. No wonder... God gave him this new compensatory reaction to teach us the Narnia tales. <laughs>